Well, we are continuing in this uh, series that we've called Upside Down, how the early church turned the world upside down. And we've been taking a look at different qualities, different aspects of life in this early uh, group of, of believers, this community of, of early Christians, and, and the kinds of behaviors that they practiced that led to a radically transformed world. It's an amazing, amazing thing how they kind of progressed in an era of persecution, of uh, marginalization, and, and yet the gospel continued to flourish in so many ways. Now, I want to ask you this. If, if being a Christ follower were to put your life or, or your, even your livelihood, let's say, in danger, how would you respond I don't know if you've ever kind of wondered that, boy, if I really were to suffer for my faith, how would I respond? I mean, if maybe if you're at risk of losing your home or your job, your life, right? Just simply for what you believe, how would you respond? Now, we can't obviously really know without being in that situation. It's somewhat hypothetical for us, but... Uh, it happens to many believers around the world. And I know that self-preservation is in our nature, right? I, I, I think I would do whatever I could do to be safe and to keep my family safe. Uh, the human default is to save ourselves and to serve ourselves, to kind of care for our own needs and uh, and those of our immediate family and while we while we maybe work at doing better than that, we learn that the truth is our kind of internal default is to look out for number one, to look out for me. It's it's instinct, you know, it's the survival instinct that we have. But for the Christ follower, we have a new instinct, right? We showing concern for others becomes first nature rather than serving ourselves. And in fact, it's really not something we find we have to discipline ourselves for. It comes naturally to care about and care for others, even under pressure. I think if if Jesus really is your savior, your your older brother, your eternal king, you can't help but give and serve and, and sacrifice for others. That's that's how you've been rewired as a believer. If your wiring initially is self-preservation, you're rewiring is to, to care for others. Now, if you've been following in the R&R journal readings recently, this last week you would have come to the end of Acts and you would have found the Apostle Paul defending himself before the authorities, including a, a regional Jewish king, a guy named King Herod Agrippa. And in so doing, Paul explained his basic gospel message. He, he's, he's, a, he's a prisoner, he's awaiting trial, and he's kind of defending himself. And he says this in Acts chapter 26, 20. He says, I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God, and prove they've changed by the good things they do. Or a New International Version says, to demonstrate their repentance by their deeds, the good things they do. It's a simple message, right? Repent of your sin, turn to God, do good stuff. That's it in a nutshell. That's Paul's message in a nutshell. And the good deeds aren't what saves everyone. That's what comes at the end as a response. It's a natural outflow from the person who is chosen to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and leader. That's just what you do. As a, you know, a follower of Jesus, 
does the good deeds. Now, others do too, but the motivation comes out of that new life in Christ. From turn, turn from sin, turn to God, do good stuff. Includes all areas, including generosity that we're going to talk about today. Financial giving. Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today, and we'll pick it up at verse 19. If you got a Bible with you, you and find Acts chapter 11. If you're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Acts is the, the book that tells the start and, and growth of the church. And we're going to, last week we dealt with the first part of the chapter where we saw that the Holy Spirit had come to the Gentiles, had been poured out in power. People were, were, were dramatically impacted. They were speaking in tongues. There was some confusion of whether this was really okay because these were Gentiles and up until then the believers had generally been Jews and, and, and so then they, they went to figure out Peter had to kind of defend himself. What happened? And then finally they said, okay, I guess this makes sense. This is, this is for the Gentiles too. And then we pick it up. In, uh, in verse um, 19, because we're going to see that the believers were suddenly then under great deal of pressure and persecution. It was dangerous to be a follower of Christ. Let's, let's, let me read to you from Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says this, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Stephen had been the first martyr. He'd been he'd been killed by stoning uh, as the first martyr of the church. It says they preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, verse 20, however, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Verse 24, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. And Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found, that's also Paul. Saul and Paul are interchangeable names. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch the believers were first called Christians. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. Or uh, according to their ability, I think is another way, another translation has it. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. All right, so there's a number of things going on here, kind of a, a big, uh, kind of a pro- 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 progression in the church. Now, how did these believers, those Jerusalem Jewish believers, respond to persecution? Well, for one thing, self-preservation. They fled to save their lives. Just like you and I probably would. Many refugees in the world today who are refugees for their faith. They, they, they leave where they were and, and go somewhere to save their lives. But as they went, they kept talking about Jesus. They kept proclaiming the gospel. And some, we're told here, limited their message only to fellow Jews. They felt like, well, we're Jews and we should talk to Jews. 
But others, emboldened by what had happened in Caesarea that we talked about in the first part of the chapter, talked about last week, shared the gospel with Gentiles. These people were gospel pioneers going to a new area, doing a new work with people previously unreached. It is cutting edge missionary work evangelism. And so in spite of the uh, progress that we saw in chapter 11, we see that the Jerusalem question, the Christians still had some questions. They're like, you know what? We got to check this out. A little time out here. We're going to send somebody to, to investigate uh, what's really going on if these Gentiles can really become believers. And so they said, they they sent this trusted delegate um, to check things out. And, and they selected Barnabas. Now with Barnabas, they got more than they expected, more than they bargained for, because he was an inspector for them, but he was also a great encourager. Now when you think about something you're going to tackle in your life, or maybe something you've done in the past, right, if you've ever embarked on a on a difficult new venture, right, a new business, a diet, uh, a, a new line of education, a job, uh, immigration, as some of us have been through, what did you need more than anything? You needed an encourager. You needed someone who could say, you can do this. We're going to help you. Here's how you succeed. Uh, it's part of what Marilyn was talking about even this morning in, in Grief Share. Part of it is like you're surrounded by encouragers. You say, you're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. And, and so that's what Barnabas was. And as Barnabas went to Antioch, encouraging the new believers, what happened? Well, look, look at verse 24. It says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, right? And many people were brought to the Lord. I think it's very interesting, his description of good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about how leaders are selected in the church. Acts chapter 6 talked about it. Look for people who have a good reputation, a good man, who are filled with the Spirit. You know, there it is, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith. We In Acts 6 it says, full of wisdom, wise people. Very similar qualities there. We're seeing a, a, a you know, a consistency in how they're selecting leaders. As we select leaders in the church, those are the things we watch for. And uh, and so they sent Barnabas out. Barnabas was more than anything an encourager. And if you're taking notes this morning along your outline, you can write this down, that encouragers fuel the harvest. Encouragers fuel the harvest. Now, if you want your church to grow, if you want your kids to succeed, if you want your spouse to flourish in their job, if you want your marriage to be satisfying, if you want good friendships, if you know any of those things, the easiest and best and quickest and most effective thing you can do is to be an encourager. Be an encourager. An encourager always wants others to succeed. Think about that. An encourager wants someone else to succeed, even ahead of yourself. Even ahead of yourself. We were uh, joking around with somebody, this couple of people this week who who are joking that, um, you know, their wives make more money than, than the husbands. And, uh, and you know, like, does that threaten you? We're like, no, because we want our spouses to succeed in what they do. Plus, well, anyway, anyway, we'll just leave it at that. So it is easy to not be an encourager. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to, to pick something, right, uh, or pick someone, pick a new idea, pick a sermon, whatever, a part to tear it down. It's easy to, to be an armchair quarterback in a situation or how things go. But you know what? It's just as easy to be kind. It's just as easy to be helpful. It's just as easy to be encouraging. 
It's actually easy to give a compliment. Did you know that? It's not hard to give a compliment. It might be hard for you because you're just having a lot of practice, but honestly, it's it's easy. We don't necessarily expect it from people, so we kind of get caught off guard. But try it. My challenge today, before you leave today, is to find someone and finish this sentence. I like the way you cook. I like the way you dress. I like the way you do your hair. I like the way you teach. I like the way you sing. I like the way whatever. That's such an easy thing to do. I like the way you Kurt, I like the way you played the piano today, right? It's not hard to be an encourager, and we need to be able to do that. Now, Barnabas isn't actually Barnabas's name. It's a nickname for him. If you jump back with me, uh, back to Acts chapter 4, 36 and 37, we see what's happened. The church is growing and developing, and, and they're, they're selling stuff and making sure everybody has enough, nobody is in need. And it says in verse chapter 4, 36, it says, for instance, there was Joseph... The one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son, Bar is always son of, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, came from the island of Cyprus, and he sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. This guy said an example. Later on, when he's going to talk about generosity, he can say, look, you guys, you can do it. I've done it. God provides, it's going to be okay. You can, he can kind of modeled the kind of behavior he was teaching. And, uh, the result of his encouraging efforts is that, that the, you know, the, the people were encouraged in their faith. They grew, the church multiplied. Today we might nickname him something more like Captain Positive. You know, I don't, you know, that, that's, that might be a good way to think of, of Barnabas. Hey, he was Captain Positive, right? So we've adopted, we've adopted the word harvest here at Bethany Church for 2018. And it's my hope and it's my goal that you will share your faith or your faith journey with at least one other person this year. And uh, my prayer is that at least a dozen people would come to faith in Christ this year at our church and through our church. Well, if you want to be a part of that, if you want to put gas in that tank, if you want to fuel that move, be an encourager. Now, what happens next, you see it there in verse 25, is really very cool. The, the new church is doing so well. Uh, verse 25 says, Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. He's doing so well, he needs some help. He needs some help. And so um, Antioch of Syria, we've got a picture here. I know it's a little tough to see from where you're sitting, but this is a kind of a modern-day map with the ancient cities laid over it. So under where it says Turkey, directly below that says Tarsus. That's Paul's hometown. And just to the right and below that a little bit is Antioch of Syria. At that time it was in Syria. Today it's part of Turkey. Antakya is the name of the city. We've got a picture of that. Sarah Stombach from our church was there a couple of years ago, and she took a picture. So that's that's ancient Antioch, but taken just a couple of years ago in what it looks like today. Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a, it was a major metropolis at that time, and, and all these kind of different communities would have lived there. You had a large Jewish community living there, as many as possibly fifty or 60,000 Jews who lived there in that time. I've got one more picture to show kind of a little bit of, uh, of the direction here, maybe just to give you another per- perception on on that location. So Antioch, if you were, um, you know, when you think about the kind of the move of the gospel as it goes from Jerusalem, it goes up and around. Um, 
Damascus would have been a long trip for Paul, the, the early in his, uh, where his conversion happened, but things really moved even much further north that. So when you think here about in the news today, places like Syria, when you th- hear news about places like, you know, Lebanon, which is today north of Israel along the coast, when you th- hear about Turkey, that's all the places where the church birthed and grew. And so I never want you to think about all those all those Syrians and their war. Who You know, who cares? It's far off. That's where the church like emerged and flourished and happened. It's in Antioch where the Christians were first called Christians. These are super important places that are happening. So anyway, so Captain Positive went off to, to Tarsus to find Saul. And he was going to get Saul to help the work. But also he wanted to get Paul back active in church ministry. Because Paul had had a bumpy time of things. He had been a terrible persecutor of, of Christians, and now, after his conversion, had become an outspoken believer, and so Barnabas kind of killed two birds with one stone. He helped the church, but he actually also helped Paul, and by helping Paul, he would, many more churches would be planted in the years to come. And so it says there that Paul and Barnabas worked together. They spent a whole year together uh, teaching large crowds, meaning they were doing the work of what we would call discipling, helping these new believers grow in their faith to be disciples of Jesus. And as those people are discipled, they bring others to faith who then also need discipling and so on. That's how the church would grow. I want you to think about it this way. When you've learned something new, a new sport, a new skill, uh, you've seen something that, you know, that, you know, a cute little video that you thought was great. What do you do? You share it on Facebook. You share it on your social media platform. Maybe most of you are into Snapchat and Tumblr. I don't know. Whatever whatever platform you use. Because you like, oh, I really want everybody to see this meme or this joke or this really important article, right? And you share it because you want others to see what you saw, to experience what you experienced, to have that same kind of laughter or thoughtfulness or what happens. And um, maybe you tried a, a you know a, a new restaurant or you went to a new hairstylist and, and what did you do? You told others you got to try that place. It's fantastic. It's really great. You become an evangelist for that experience, that place, whatever it is. Well, in the same way, these persecuted believers who fled to Antioch to this big city were were active and effective disciples because they shared the gospel. Here's the thing I want to say about the ancient world. We tend to think of this as far off, you know, places of, you know, primitive peoples. Just put that notion out of your head. When you go back to Acts 6 and you see the selection of the deacons, one of them was a Jewish convert from Antioch. He was one of those people in the Jewish community. There's a fair bit of travel between these places that we sometimes forget about as they went back and forth. So you can kind of see it's it's a big place, but they had ways of getting around. Um Thanks to the Roman roads, largely. But look, here's the, here's the thing I want to want to share. Genuine believers can't help but be active in their faith and with their faith. It's how we know someone has really grasped salvation because they're active with it and they share it and they want others to get it. And uh, you know, you remember what we said at, at, earlier: salvation is proved by deeds. So it all comes to this. If you're taking notes, this is your second point in your outline today. Good discipleship is proved by action. Good discipleship is proved by action. We saw it there in verses 27 and 28 that prophets came to Antioch 
of Syria, and one of them warned of a, of a famine that was coming to the Judean region. Verse 29 reports, So the believers in Antioch descended to sit, decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. Now, there's no indication that they were ever asked or told to give. They just gave. Each one according to their ability. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. When an opportunity arises, He prompts you and you respond. I tend to say, when you're prompted to give, very often the first thing the Lord says to you, you that's the right thing to do. To respond immediately. I think we should give to that. Not everything is yours to give to. A need does not constitute a call in the sense of like you can't give to anything everything and you're not called to give to everything so that's why you trust the holy spirit to say that one's yours that one someone else is going to get that one you take care of that one do a little bit for this one over here trust the holy spirit to direct you in that but they gave each one as they were able or as much as they they could you're never obligated to give anything but generosity is the default of the disciple and I don't want you to overlook the generosity of the Jerusalem believers either. Here they were, right, under persecution, and yet supporting Barnabas on his mission to Antioch. If someone is going to go for God's work, someone else has to pay. Someone has got to give so the person can do God's work. Now, typically, people don't want the preacher to talk about money and giving. And um, that's too bad because uh, it's a really important. And there's been a lot of financial abuses in, in the church on a kind of broader spectrum, right? When a televangelist says he needs a private jet or he collects money from earnest followers to build a big, great big mansion, you get edgy and uncomfortable and you think, that's it, I don't want to hear anything about money. But Jesus talked about money a lot. And we cannot shy away from it. You handle money every day. And nothing has the power to grab hold of your heart the way money and wealth and possessions do. So one reason giving is so essential is that it helps to break money's power over my life. Because if Jesus is king over my life, Jesus is also king over my wallet. He's also king over my bank account. He's, he's king over my finances. And generosity breaks money's attempt to usurp, to take over Jesus' lordship in my life. You can't serve both you know, wealth and God. And so giving helps me to say, money's important. I'm going to use it well. I'm not talking about whether you earn a lot or a little. That's not the point here. The point is Jesus is first, no matter what. Some other time we'll spend some time talking about the biblical habit of the tithe. But the tithe is the only thing where God says, test me in this. Try me out. See if I don't provide for you. It's a great place to start by being obedient to him. Now, as I read through this passage in Acts, this account, I can't help but wonder if the Gentile believers knew that the Jewish believers were a little suspicious of their conversion. And, uh, you know, if they did, they didn't hold a grudge about it. They gave generously to the Jerusalem believers. They gave it without any expectation of a payback or, or any obligation to return the favor because... This is your third point in your outline today. Generosity has no strings attached. Generosity has no strings attached. Years ago, we left uh, seminary, and um, I 
I should have just given it away. But anyway, I sold my guitar really cheap to to a, a, another student. And um, it was a pretty nice guitar. And uh, off we went to Canada to go church planting. And I was supposed to be the worship leader, but I didn't have a guitar. And, and my church planting partner said, Hey, will someone bless me with this guitar? It's a really nice guitar. I just want you to have it. It's yours. God just told me just to give it to you. It's yours. It's a pretty nice guitar. It's a Takamidi. And... Oh, that was great, and I, I really liked playing it. It was wonderful. And about a year later, the, my partner said, Hey, you know that guitar? Um, I'd like to have it back. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, really, I was just, I was just loaning it to you. He was not loaning. He said, God told me to give this to you. <laughs> right? That's generosity with strings. No pun intended. Right? <laughs> Very attached, six of them plus one, right? That's that's not good. That's not good generosity. Years later, I'll tell you. Some other time, I'll tell you about the next guitar and how that happened. But the new believers in Antioch. In fact, I will. I will tell you one more story. This one's about a motorcycle. Oh, it's ten thirty. I guess I can't tell that story. So, uh, okay. Good. I was waiting for that. Uh, you know, it's like at a concert when the when the when the artist leaves the stage and they're just waiting for the applause a little bit, and then they come back. Oh, okay, I'll do one more song. So the uh, so we were, we just moved to California, and I was pre in my message I mentioned about riding motorcycles, but I'd sold my bike before we moved down. And uh, that week, a couple from the church contacted me and they said, "Hey, we want to have coffee with you." So I met them for coffee, and they said. Um, you know, we heard you talking about motorcycles and, well, we have an extra motorcycle and we'd like you to have it because we know you're going to use it for ministry. And so sure enough, they gave me a, a 1200 Sportster. It's a great bike. It's fast. It's fun to ride. And, um, and, uh, so that allowed me to start a motorcycle group. They got some new people connected to the church, including one guy who was really lost and he, he rode with us. We built a friendship with him. Little by little, he started putting his life back together. Today, that guy is actively serving in his church. He wrote the Christmas play for his church the last two years. He's off all his pain meds. He he went back to school. He got a college education. He's looking for ways to serve God in ministry. All because someone else gave me a motorbike. Look, you guys, generosity has this way of working that you cannot predict. All your job is to do is to respond when God calls you to respond. And in fact, I ended up giving the bike back to the people that gave it to me in the first place because it came a point where I didn't need it anymore. And so they got double blessed through that experience. And the new believers there in Antioch responded to the need in Jerusalem immediately and generously with no strings attached. Nothing in it for them. Nothing to gain by giving. Right? It's one reason why we give to missions and why giving to missions is so important. Because it's the only place you give and you get nothing in return except eternal reward. Heavenly treasure that Jesus promised. And generosity without strings attached also need not be hard. Just like being an encourager. You give as the Lord prompts you to give and you're actually giving to Him when you give to someone else. And if you give to someone and they don't use it the way you intended, not your problem. Not your worry. Not your place to judge or pull on that string. Oh, that's not... You weren't supposed to use it for that. Hey, 
you're just accountable for did you give or didn't you give? And you let the Lord deal with that person or that group or that agency or that church or however, how they invested that money. If they blew it, if they wasted it, that's not on you and not yours to worry about. The money wasn't yours in the first place. It's all God's. Why are you worrying about it? Let God deal with that. Let God deal with that. I will not, when I meet Jesus, I'll be accountable for my actions, not anybody else's. And that comes with giving as well. So, I tell our staff here and our our leaders and others, every dollar we spend is a dollar someone gave to God. But they gave it to God to be spent on ministry. And so we, we live with that tension. So those of us responsible for the funds, we are accountable to God. We don't hoard it. We don't waste it. We invest it. We find ways to advance the gospel with it. We, we spend it on God's work, which includes, you know, hiring staff and maintaining the building and sponsoring missionaries and empowering volunteers and many other things. But as a giver myself, I'm only accountable for whether or not I give obediently. No strings attached. Time's up. I want to tell you this. Encouragers fuel the harvest. Are you an encourager today? Will you encourage someone today? I don't mean just like, hey, nice to see you. I mean, I like it when you fill in the blank. Okay? Secondly, good discipleship is proved by action. Are you actively practicing your faith? Does it show up in your daily life? And thirdly, generosity has no strings attached. Be a generous disciple. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for today, and thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving these episodes for us so we can learn and grow and mature and be generous and be wise and be filled with your spirit. We thank you for your great love for us and for your church. In Jesus' name, amen.